Welcome to week two, two out of four. So we're about halfway there. The rest of this, we're just living on a prayer, as uh, one poet had once said. Hey, uh, thank you for being here tonight. We're going to introduce you to a man by the name of Gregory the Great. Uh, trust that you've done the reading for this. But before we get to Gregory the Great, got a story about Santa Claus. True, true story. But before that, we're trying to understand the historical context of what's going on, even centuries before Gregory was on the scene, in order to help us understand kind of what's going on here. Um, so my parents were in town a couple weekends ago, and they're from out of state, so they were staying with us. And um, I was on the couch. It was a Saturday morning, beautiful Saturday morning. You know, the leaves outside the window turning, the sun was shining in. And I'm sitting on the couch in the living room, and my dad walks in. I'm like, hey, Dad, I got some coffee brewed if you want some. Now, my dad and I drink coffee radically different from each other, the way that we prepare our coffee. So I made coffee that morning, and uh, I had got the nice beans out from the back of the cupboard. I had put them through the coffee grinder, ground the beans up, put them in the French press. You're supposed to keep it in there for X amount of time. I put it in X amount of time times two because I really want this stuff to taste good. Like, strong, it's strong coffee. My dad says it's coffee you could drink with a fork. So I'm like, Dad, you want some coffee? Yeah, I'd love some. So he goes, and I, I, I'm sitting on the couch, and I, I watch him as he goes to the island in the kitchen. He grabs one of the mugs. He fills it about a third of the way full, then walks right over to the sink, turns it on. That's good. <laughs> That's not coffee the way God intended. I don't know. But I hear that amen. But it was funny because while we were drinking our coffee, at least one of us, uh, we were talking about Constantine. And you write about this in your books this week, how before that time, the church was persecuted. Here was this concentrated group of Christians. There was, according to the world standards, there was nothing in it for them to admit that they were a Christian. They'd be persecuted. They'd be outed. They'd be brutally killed. There were so many consequences for being a Christian. So if you weren't actually in it for the right reasons, no way. You don't want any part of that. There was a call for unity. There was a call for the defense of true, uh, a, a true doctrine. But then when Christianity, Constantine comes on the scene and he sees a growing amount of Christians, the church is growing, which is great, that's good. But in order to unify Rome, he legalizes Christianity. And he even goes as far to make it the state religion. Now, what did that do? I mean, it said in your books this week, it allowed more people to see opportunities for power, for authority, to be like, well, I'm going to tie myself to the church. It allowed some false teachings to come into the church. It allowed a lot of hypocrisy to come in the church. And here you have what was a concentrated group of Christ followers now is watered down. But God is faithful. And throughout all these centuries, even now to 2023, the gospel has carried on. It has carried on. And sometimes it took somebody to have a sip of even what 
watered-down coffee to be able to taste the coffee in it and say, I like that. That's what I want to push forward. So as we're talking about this, this change uh, with Constantine and legalizing Christianity, uh, one of the men who had come out of that persecuted era was St. Nicholas. You know him. Santa Claus. Jolly old St. Nick. St. Nicholas was a real person living at that time. And, man, he loved the gospel. And he was known for his generosity. There's a story about St. Nicholas where there was, a, there was a man in town. He had a bunch of daughters. And he was, it, like, like the father of daughters, he was in a lot of debt. <clears throat> the problem was is that the way that debts were collected at that time he knows that the debt collector is coming tomorrow. I don't have the money to pay this man. I'm going to have to sell one of my daughters into slavery. It's how, it's how their culture worked at that time. Nicholas found out about it. He said, this is a child of God. Can't allow that. But he also wanted to, you know, not show his generosity. So in the middle of the night, he came and he threw the window. He put a big gold coin and slipped it into that girl's shoe. The next morning, she finds it in her shoe, and it's enough to cover the debt. And she's spared a life of slavery. This happened like three times before he was discovered. Um, so he was a man of generosity, St. Nicholas, but uh, he also, he was, he was there for the Council of Nicaea. As all these Christians are gathered, and all these people in the church, these leaders are gathered together, and now it's legal to be a Christian. You can, you can talk about it freely. Uh, I believe the emperor himself, Constantine, was there, I believe, um, and they're talking about theological matters and getting everything all figured out and sorted out, like what do we actually believe? There was another guy there. His name was Arius. Now, Arius was like, love God, love your neighbor. I'm all about it. That's great. Following the teachings of Jesus... I'm cool with that. My only hang-up is that I don't think Jesus was divine. I think he was adopted by God on the, on, based off of his merits. So deny the divinity of Christ. At that point, Saint, jolly old Saint Nick gets up out of his seat, walks up to the front, and punches this guy out. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that was the right response. I'm also not saying that was the wrong response. But you could see a passion for true doctrine. You could see a passion for the gospel. And it made some great internet memes like this one. <laughs> deck the halls, try deck the heretic. And here's one of my favorite. It's a two-parter. You ready for this? It's John Piper. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there to punch Arius in the face. Again, I'm not saying that was the right response, but this is church history, so there you go. <laughs> so after that, you're seeing a decline of Rome. Rome was this huge empire. It was huge, but it was declining because of interior threats and exterior threats. Inward, you had downward spiraling, spiraling morals. 
Which is saying something, because Rome was not known for their high morals. Hashtag Colosseum, right? Uh, you also had an arrogant, empty, elitist lifestyle that was popular. You think, think Hunger Games, capital city, right? There's this lifestyle they want to achieve, but there's just this emptiness behind it. That was Rome in this day. You also had, well, the, the emperor himself moved out of Rome, moved the capital a thousand miles away to Constantinople, and when the emperor moves and the government moves, that means that businesses move and jobs move, and that leaves Rome in a big decline. Then you had the external threats. You had natural disasters. You had invaders. Uh, you had the Huns, the Vandals, the Goths, the Barbarians, the Lombards. This city was conquered five times in two decades. You went from once a city with a population of over a million now the size of Mason City, Iowa. That's what we're talking about here. That was a big decline. And by the way, the Lombards, one of the last ones here in setting the stage here, uh, they wanted to control Italy. They also were going to forcefully control everybody to practice Arianism. Remember Arius? The guy who got punched out by Santa? That's the teaching that they wanted to uh, force everybody in Rome to uh, adhere to. So, that sets the stage. I'd like to introduce you to Gregory the Great. His parents were generous. His parents were humble. His uh, father, they had this big estate in the hills just outside the, the city. A beautiful place. His father portrayed manly virtues and morals. He expressed love and respect both to the church and to Roman authority. His mother would often be caring for the poor. That's how she spent her time. And she often took young Gregory to visit the tombs of the Christian martyrs. They were there in Rome. You think Peter died in Rome. Paul died in Rome. She took him to their tombs, and that had a big impact on him. So Gregory grows up, and he became a prefect. It's like, it's a government job in which he handled a lot of the city administration, and he worked tirelessly to address and care for the concerns and the needs of the people of the city. At that time, the government was very small in, in Rome, but he's basically like the top, top position in the, what's left of the Roman uh, local government. But he also is also trying to take care of, you've got the, the, the church, which is still in Rome, and you've got the government, and uh, trying to take care of the needs, and people are trying to figure out where do we go for help, what do we, we've got this constant threat to the Lombards trying to take over, you've got you know, poor people, and you've got all these things. So that was a lot of work for Gregory, and it wore him out, it wore him down, and after a successful time as prefect, he just wanted to retreat from public life and take on a quiet life of God-filled solitude. So after his father died, he uh, took his inherited estate on the hills and he converted it into a monastery and decided to become a monk. In fact, some of his childhood friends also joined him and became monks with him. And um, while he was a monk, this guy fell in love with God's Word. He studied it. 
when he had questions, he's got a whole, whole team of monks to show him, like, what does this mean? Explain this to me. And he was just diving in. In fact, while he was a monk, he uh, wrote a letter to a friend and said, if you were to receive letters from an earthly emperor, you think, like, if you got a letter from the president, would you be excited and want to open it? Maybe you're like, eh, okay. Well, you say you got a letter from Taylor Swift. Would you want to open it? <laughs> Come on. Okay, so if you were to receive letters from an earthly emperor, you would not linger. You would not rest. You would not allow yourself to sleep till you had learned what the earthly emperor had written. The emperor of heaven, the Lord of men and angels, has sent you letters for your life's benefit, and yet you neglect to read his letters with fervor. Study them, I beg you, and meditate daily on the words of your creator. This is a man who valued God's word. Scriptures meant a lot to him, so he loved it, he studied it, and he began to teach it. Now, when you look, in, you look in the New Testament, you see qualifications for elders, qualifications for pastors, and almost all of those qualifications are based on the quality of character. But there's one in there that says you must be able to teach. Gregory could teach. You had a lot of people at that time, leaders in the church, who wanted to sound like the great Roman orators of old. You talk about, like, turn of the millennium, like uh, Cicero, for example, where he, he, could, he could speak and the whole auditorium would go silent and follow him. So they tried to base their teachings off of sounding like these guys from 500 years ago. Now, the people in this era, they spoke Latin, but after 500 years... Latin has changed a little bit. You're talking classic Latin to, at that time, modern-day Latin. This is a period of 600 years. So it's almost like nothing against the King James. But it's kind of like preaching King James throughout thy whole message, right? Gregory didn't want to vainly use classic Latin, but he wanted, uh, he wanted to understand the world around him, and be able to act with it. He didn't want to be the kind of scholar that simply tickled his own ego, but he wanted desperately to use reason and to interpret the scriptures in light of the present and be able to actually help his audience understand them and to convince them of the truth. He spoke the language of today. He used examples of today using the solid word of God, but talking to the people in a way that the educated and the uneducated could all understand. He'd often speak without notes so that he could look people in the eye. People, everywhere from poor people to kings all throughout Europe would want to be taught Bible from Gregory because he could explain it clearly and simply in ways that they could understand. Uh, Gregory was often sick. He, uh, he started fasting. There was something that was popular at the time and you know, throughout the Dark Ages, aesthetic 
masochism. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but basically it's severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of pleasure and conveniences, even when you don't need to. Uh, so he started fasting. Fasting is good. Fasting is biblical. He would go days. He would take it too far. He would go days without sleeping, days without eating to try to discipline his body and deny it of any conveniences. You know who is concerned? His mom. His mom would send him vegetables and also sent him a note with the vegetables. Before I tell you what his mom wrote in the note, um, I once inherited a bagpipe because a relative had a son who used to play the bagpipe. He moved out, grew up, moved out, and didn't need his bagpipe anymore. He's like, anybody want this bagpipe? I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> so we get it home, you know, blow it up with air, and, you know, in order, in order to get the sound out of it, the classic beautiful bagpipe sound, you, you depress the bag with your arm. You, know, you just kind of clench your armpit, and that's how you, you start with the sound. The bag had a hole in it. So instead of the beautiful sound of a bagpipe, yeah, we don't have it anymore. It was useless. So um, Gregory's mom sent vegetables and a note that said, what else is the body but an organ of the spirit? But even the greatest musician does little honor to his art if his instrument is out of tune. Slack strings do not produce the sound commanded by the artist's hands, and a flute that leaks air, or a bagpipe that leaks air, renders all the efforts of the artist fruitless. So, he did have some sort of illness. It may have some, been something else medically, we don't know, but a lot of people attribute uh, his constant illness to overworking and overfasting and not getting enough rest. I can't help but think of, uh, was it Elijah who, you know, depressed in the desert and, and God sends him food and tells him to take a nap. Sometimes we just have to take God's gifts, right? Take care of our bodies. So um, he's in the monastery. People from the city, rich and poor, are coming to the monastery because they heard about this guy and his reputation. They trusted Gregory to be just and knew that he had administration skills and could point people where to go for help, whether it's a place to stay or maybe they need food. They knew he could point them where to go. He's like an early Glenn Keith. With one look, it said that Gregory could distinguish between those who were truly in need and those who were only pretending to be. He once said, poor is he who desires that which he lacks, and rich is he who does not wish to acquire that which he lacks. Poverty consists in a spiritual sense of having not, not in having more or less in one's possession. He who embraces poverty is not poor. So he had a lot of discernment going on. And then something hit Rome, something severe. It was the plague, and the plague wiped out a third of the population that was left in Rome. And the previous pope, the one who is pope while Gregory was in the monastery, it said that the plague 
killed him first. He was the first to die of the plague. And then it continued to spread and continued to spread. There's people dying of this. So the people were scared. They were vulnerable. They were desperate. And they needed a leader. There's nothing local government can do for them. They're looking to the church. The pope died. So the people of Rome could only think of one person to be the leader that they needed. So, like anybody would do, they formed a mob to demand that Gregory become pope. <laughs> they did. They stormed the monastery. They're at the gates. They're out there with their torches, and they're just chanting and, like, banging on the gates. And they were not going to take no for an answer. And out of desperation, they were starting to become violent while demanding for Gregory. Now, Gregory was inside. He ignored it as much as he could, as long as he could. And then he resorted to hiding. <laughs> then the other monks found him and said, you got to get out there. You got you to listen to the people. If for nothing else to prevent a riot, we're all going to be killed. So Gregory goes out. He consents to being named Pope, as he said, but only until you find somebody better and more suited for the job. Well, that, that never happened. So he took the job and the position of Pope. And uh, through these unique circumstances, even the position itself, almost overnight, was transforming into something else, despite Gregory's efforts. Now, when it came to being Pope, Gregory said over and over throughout his, um, throughout his reign as Pope, that he had this position, not one of authority, but as the servant of the servants of God. That's how he viewed it. Uh, he actually wrote a document while Pope. He called it Pastoral Care, which is fun because a friend of his, a really good close friend who could say anything to him, he actually called him out and said, Gregory, you're somewhat of a hypocrite because you're not the perfect leader that this document makes you ought to be. And Gregory was quick to respond and say, I'm not a good leader. I didn't want this. I just want to show what a good shepherd should look like. It's kind of like when an ugly painter depicts a handsome man. That's how he viewed this document. And by the way, pastoral care, it's still in circulation it's still being read by church leaders today. According to this, pastoral care, Gregory said the most important attribute that a shepherd in the church should adhere to is humility. He preached humility over and over and over. He also outlined the responsibilities of a good shepherd. He advised that, you know, because people are different. Everybody's different. So the same admonitions and remedies do not work for everyone. You have to cater to different people. He, uh, oh boy, did he call out leaders who were in it for power, money, or attention, or authority. He did not like that at all. Uh, he viewed one of his most important tasks to be uh, to strengthen priests and bishops spiritually and to encourage them in their mission to help, to serve, and to save. 
It's said that he wrote an estimated 20,000 letters in his 14 years as pope. 800 of those still survive. And leadership tip, if you're, if you're in a position of leadership, uh, he used delegation and trusted people to help him accomplish this. No way he could have written 20,000 letters besides everything else that he's doing on top of that. So he did uh, dictate a lot of those. Um, but he would also encourage his delegates well. At that time, the Anglo-Saxons were in what's now known as England. These guys were brutal. They were dangerous. So Gregory the Great sends 40 monks to now England to bring the gospel to the dangerous Anglo-Saxons. It's a church plant. And like most church plants, these monks were convinced that they were going to die. <laughs> but here's what happened. As they're reporting back and saying, I don't think we can do this, we're scared, Gregory encourages them and keeps them focused on the mission of bringing the message of Jesus and the church into this, into this country because they need it. The Anglo-Saxon king, instead of brutally killing the missionary monks as expected, asked to be baptized. And the following Christmas day, that same year, 10,000 Anglo-Saxons were baptized. Hashtag win. <laughs> that was huge. And when they reported that back to Gregory, Gregory then reminded the monks to be humble because all the glory goes to God. He said, rejoice, but tremble. Also, as Pope and in his letter to other pastors, uh, he fought against financial corruption. He fought against sloppy administrative practices. Uh, preaching is what Gregory thought was the most important to reach people's hearts. Uh, he had great respect for arts and music. He says that beauty expands the sound and makes it receptive to the reality of God. So at Mass, Gregory thought that every detail mattered. Lyrics, music, movement, gestures, etc. He even personally helped train some young singers and wrote some hymns. Here's, here's the fun part. As he's taking songs, hymns, spiritual songs, all these things in the church, movement, art, all these things, he's modernizing it, right? He's modernizing it to his time. So as, again, nothing wrong with traditional services at all. But as you look around Candeo, like, like we've got drums, like, that's modernizing these things to the current times to reach more hearts for Christ, right? That's what Gregory was doing. He's like, we can't get stuck doing this if we want to reach more people. We have to transform with the, keep solid to the truths of Scripture while moving with the times to capture people's hearts. And also, his previous work as prefect, that helped him a lot with skills in administration and finance, and uh, yeah, his capable leadership earned him trust, and he used that to advance and teach the Bible and gather people for prayer. This guy had courage. I mentioned the Lombards, those dangerous 
a dangerous group of people who wanted to take over Italy, and uh, they were a constant threat. And you had, man, they hated Rome. They hated Rome, and Rome hated them. The feeling was mutual. You had the emperor's guy, his, basically his general, was going to attack Lombard-controlled areas. And while he did that and took all the, all the available soldiers from the city of Rome with him, that left Rome completely defenseless. Gregory had a problem with that because he did love his city. He loved it well. So he told somebody who could speak both you know, his language and the Lombard language, he said, riding out there, I'm just going to talk to him. Just going to talk to him and tell him not to invade us. And his interpreter's like, you're putting the lives of your militia at risk. He's like, what militia? It's me and you. <laughs> so here's this old man, ill, weak, but a man of courage. He knew what he needed to do. So he gets on his horse and he rides out to meet the Duke of the Lombards. And uh, he was willing to meet with Gregory. And Gregory asked him, would you be willing to release the hostages that you've taken from our city? And he said, I can see you're a brave man. I'll release them for a price. And he named a price. It was, it was pretty high. And Gregory knew that the city didn't have the money for it, but he knew that the church did. So he paid from the church to release the hostages and free these Romans. Uh, the other part of the deal was that uh, the Duke of the Lombards wanted the general to stop attacking the Lombard-controlled areas. Gregory said, listen, like, I can't control the guy, but I will, I will tell him. I will do my best to try to convince him to stop. And the duke was satisfied with that. Let him go. Let the hostages go. It was great. Well, the general did not stop attacking those Lombard-controlled areas. And now the king of the Lombards comes to town, and he's ready to just decimate Rome. Just take it out. Just wipe it out. So Gregory rides out to meet him. And he rides out, and the king, who was not known for his mercy, listened to what Gregory had to say. And then he finally spoke and said, I know you are an honest man, a man of God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'll spare the city for this much money. And Gregory's like, we don't have that much money, either in the city or in the church. Like, we don't have it. So the king of the Lombards says, then have the emperor pay it. Have the general pay it. Gregory said, he, he knew what was going on. He said, Rome is not worth that much to them. But to me, it's worth more than my life. So here's the deal. Take my life right here, right now, and spare the city and its people. He was willing to lay down his life for the people he loved. 
even the guilty people that he loved. So the king says, you're not just an honest man, but you're a brave one. As far as the amount of the tribute, I'm sure we can come to an agreement. In any event, the city of Rome has nothing to fear as long as Gregory remains pope. His courage really, uh, really had an impact on the king. St. Augustine, talking about all the roles that um, are involved with ministry, he said, the turbulent have to be corrected, the faint-hearted cheered up, the weak supported, the gospel's opponents need to be refuted, its insidious enemies guarded against, the unlearned need to be taught, the indolent stirred up, the argumentative checked, the proud must be put in their place, the desperate set on their feet, those engaged in quarrels reconciled, the needy have to be helped, the oppressed need to be liberated, the good to be given your backing, the bad to be tolerated, and all must be loved. That's the role of a Christian leader. And you know, church leadership is not easy, but it is important. And when you take on the role of elder, or pastor, or shepherd, you're taking on the task of serving, protecting, and caring for the church which is Jesus' bride. So Jesus himself takes this very seriously. We got a verse from Hebrews 13, 17 we're going to put up on the screen. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Another verse from 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So, of course, there's this dangerous ditch that we see in Gregory's day, before that, during the next 1,000 years in the Dark Ages. We still see it present today. There's a tendency to view those in church leadership as something greater than they are, something superhuman or even supernatural. <coughs> Excuse me. Roman emperors claimed to be deities. That wasn't good. And uh, you look in the New Testament, <clears throat> some people even started bowing down to praise the apostles and the leaders of the first century church, like Peter. <coughs> To which Peter and the other apostles would say, get up. I'm simply a man just like you. There's that humility that Gregory the Great was talking about. Humility. Leading the church not as an authority, but as the, servants, as the servant of servants. And that was modeled perfectly by Jesus. The king of kings, who was God, is God. He stepped off his throne in heaven to take on human nature. As God and man, he washed people's feet. He became obedient, even to the point of death. I want to put on the, the, the screen the names of the elders of Candeo. These are men of high character, and they've taken on an important role in the church. 
It's not one that they take lightly, but it is one that they take on joyfully. And I, I encourage you tonight, as you break out into groups, I encourage you to pray for the elders of this church at your tables before you leave tonight. Whether you pray for all of them, or maybe you just grab one of the names on this list, I'd love for you to pray for these guys. They need it. They need, they need to be prayed for. So we're going to break up throughout the building with your group to discuss uh, some questions we're going to put up in just a minute. Um, and then just dismiss yourselves when you're done. If you don't have a group, you can jump into one of the tables in the hall uh, outside the garage. Um, good news, we can leave all the chairs here tonight because they're going to need them for the youth. So you can leave the chairs. You can, you can move the chairs if you want. Just put them back when you're done if you wouldn't mind. And uh, if you do have children to pick up downstairs, please pick them up by 8 p.m. It's not likely, but it's not outside of reality that at 8.01, Jake Herring himself is going to walk through the children's area handing out puppies and espresso. So <laughs> pick up your kids by 8. So some questions. One, what are some ways that you can express gratitude and respect for the work that your elders are doing? Question two, do you have unhealthy expectations of our elders that go beyond what the Bible calls them to? What about other leaders in our society? And three, how can you have peace? We're talking about like the Constantine shift and everything. How can you have peace if the election does not go your way? <laughs>